Welcome to Startup Dads, a podcast about the highs and lows of building a business and raising a family at the same time. For more information about the topics we cover on the podcast and other Startup Dads related content, you can follow us on Twitter at Startup Dads Pod. I'm Amrit, co-founder of Hyper Exponential, a tech startup that I co-founded in 2017. It's grown from a two-person team working out of my kitchen to a profitable business with several large clients and more than 20 team members across London and Europe. I'm also dad to Evie, my first child who was born last December. I am even more excited than I normally am to introduce Eben Upton to the show this week. So Eben, could you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about what makes you a startup dad? Um, for the last 13 years, I've been doing a thing called Raspberry Pi. The Raspberry Pi Foundation tries to get young people excited about computers. And the thing that makes me a startup dad is fairly recently, I acquired a couple of young people of my own. So I have a daughter, four-year-old daughter called Afra, and I have a one, a just over one-year-old son called Kit, uh, who, who joined us on the 7th, of, the 7th of May 2020. So right in the middle of all the, uh, I don't know, excitement, awfulness last year, uh, we, we had a wonderful thing happen to us. Well, we can go a little bit deeper on some of that later. But uh, Eben, look, I'd love to go back to the genesis of the Raspberry Pi and ask a little bit about you. Loads has been written about how the Raspberry Pi came to life. But actually, I'd love to know about how you went from engineer at Broadcom to founder. Uh, you know, you were a serious engineer to founder of one of the world's most impactful computer companies. Yeah, so I'm, I'm, now, I'm now sadly a fairly unserious engineer. <laughs> so I am a games industry person originally. So I, as a child, I... So two formative things for me. One, um, uh, computer games, and a desire to learn to write computer games as a child, because of course this was an era when you could, the machines were simple enough, that you could actually write a computer game in your bedroom and get it published, or write something in your bedroom which was pretty close to what would get published. The other one was watching Bergerac as a kid. Uh, there's a television series called Bergerac with John Nettles in, and, and there was a, a character called Charlie Hungerford um, in, in Bergerac, who was a kind of um, Arthur Daly type, a sort of spiv businessman, and I just idolized him. As a child, I, I would watch just watch Bergerac just for Charlie Hunkerford. I guess another one was I used to grow up near Leeds in, in, in you know up in Yorkshire, and I used to sometimes go to Leeds Station, and I would see all these people with their briefcases, these business people with their briefcases, going somewhere in a hurry, and I really, really, really wanted to to to, to go somewhere in a hurry uh, to have a briefcase. And I never owned a briefcase, but I really wanted a briefcase and somewhere to go in a hurry. So I was a delightful little child, uh, and so I was. A, I, I love the games industry. I started my first uh, company when I was when I was twenty, when I was an undergraduate at Cambridge, which was the games company called IdeaWorks. Sold out of that in a couple of years. Went and did academic stuff at the university. So I, I, I taught at the university, I did a PhD. And then I ended up working in, in, in semiconductors afterwards. I ended up working for a, an amazing company called Broadcom who, who make, um, well, who make all sorts of different semiconductors. Uh, and I was involved in their mobile phone business. So I was involved in particularly the multimedia side. So this was at right. a point where phones were first beginning to grow multimedia okay. acceleration hardware. They weren't just a modem. You know, a, a phone in 2000, in 2000 is really just a processor, uh, a cellular modem, a screen, a keypad. And what happened over that kind of decade between 2000 and 2010 was that uh, mobile phones started to grow uh, larger screens. And as you grow larger screens, you want to have GPU, you want to have hardware to accelerate getting pixels onto those screens. So I was involved in, in a team with a team in Cambridge who, who, who did that. Raspberry Pi is kind of the coming together of probably three strands, four strands maybe even, um, one of which was my experience teaching in Cambridge and discovering that young people weren't as interested as they used to be in computers and asking myself what we could, what we could do about that, what we could do to fix that, that decline 
in interest. Because another one is my I've always enjoyed making little pieces of hardware, trying to make little computers. And so I was I was making little general purpose computers be- long before Raspberry Pi things you could solder together yourself on a breadboard. There was some of the capabilities that I suddenly found I had access to at Broadcom. So there were chips I could get my hands on, which were much, much, much more powerful than the chips in the same kind of cost bracket as the chips I've been using for building my own computers, but which were much, much, much more powerful. And then the last one was this kind of interesting business that I've always had. Raspberry Pi is my is my fourth. Yes, Raspberry Pi is my fourth business. So IdeaWorks, the first one was a scaled business. I had a couple of lifestyle companies in between, and then Raspberry Pi is my second scaled business. And it's really, you can see it as, can we build a business to take chips that Broadcom are making to build little computers to get kids interested in computing? Uh, it's those, those, those four strands that come together to make Raspberry Pi. I don't think many people will have heard about the other three parts of how, how your life have intersected to do that. Because obviously the Raspberry Pi has, you know, been such a formative, a transformational piece of kit uh, in the computer education industry. Mm. Uh, you know, you worked at Broadcom for a long time and yes. built this incredible business and charitable foundation. How did you, I, I, I know that's a kind of nebulous question, but how did you inter- intertwine and balance all three? I worked very hard. <laughs> I just work very hard. There's there's two lots of 40 hours in a week. There's 168 hours in a week. Yes. It's four lots of 40 hours. Yeah. So you can do two jobs and still sleep. Yeah. <laughs> Often as a founder, I think you can tell a founder who they when they know how many waking hours they have in the yes. week, right? And how yes. they can do the, to use the engineering term, the bin packing algorithm <laughs> to fit, fit everything in. Yeah. Now, I mean, there's a sort of question as to whether you still have time to be a father, Mm. And that's a change. And of course, these guys came along very late in my, uh, I was 30, mm. how old was I? I was 39 when Afra came along. I was 42 uh, when, when Kit came along, which is, which, is, which is relatively late, I guess. Did you think subconsciously or consciously, you know, kids late intertwined with, you know, you building and scaling this, these two amazing roles? Um, it's easy to have kids when you're old because you have more money. Yes, um, and that's And that's helpful. Um, so you're not sort of trying to pay off your first mortgage while you're having your kids. Um, yeah, it's always the risk with parents that you, and I'm really glad my parents didn't do this, um, that you try and live through your kids or you try to, mm-hmm. you try to exert some undue influence over who they become because they're not, it's not going to work. I mean, they're going to become, <laughs> they're going to become who they were going to become. You know, um, uh, certainly in terms of intelligence, they'll become who they're going to become. I mean, you can't really move the needle on that, right? Um, it's fascinating. The uh, you know, you look at like twin studies and twins separated at birth. By the time you're, you know, even if you take one kid and you send it to the best school in the world, and you take the other one and like have it raised by wolves, um, mm-hmm. those advantages, the the nurture advantages, bleed away over time. And so, yeah, by the time they're forty or fifty, <laughs> kind of back on the same life trajectory. So, um, so, so we've always felt. Listen, I've always felt that I guess you can make them happy. Mm-hmm. You can try and make them happy, uh, but trying to make them clever or trying to make them go into a profession or or something is is cruel and it's easier so i think when you're older maybe it's easier because you've done more stuff you've had more life yourself and maybe gives you a bit more perspective on on letting your kids be who they want to be and of course they're and they're both lovely i mean so far anyway they they're both they're both lovely and we also you know the intelligence thing you know maybe you might be able to change a moriarty into a Holmes or a Holmes into a moriarty yeah. but but yeah, yeah it's probably the best you can do and I, i'm hoping for I'm hoping for homes. <laughs> for homes, that's fantastic. I'm for homes, come on. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, maybe take, kind of taking a slightly different tack, a related question. You are, you know, from what I've read, 
actively involved maybe maybe not quite as much now that you're ceo of the business but we're actively involved in the engineering side for a very yeah. long time i love engineering it's fun right it's, it's the best part of the job it's the best part of the job right i mean it's it's um particularly in relation to getting older and getting older and, ret- and retiring i suppose um you know i i pity people who don't have labs to go to but i mean engineering is lovely and there are I've had a chance to to be involved in every bit of the design. So when we did Raspberry Pi 2, we effectively took the, because it was a small project at Broadcom, uh, the chip for Raspberry Pi 2. And um, what we did was we, we we took the Raspberry Pi 1 chip, 2835, and we chopped the side off it. And we glued a big arm, new big quad-core arm complex on the side, uh, and then kind of brought wires in. Uh, between two blocks on the chip, threw away the old arm, refloated some blocks, made a lot of space, brought some wires, and kind of tied them physically, tied them onto the uh, onto the wires that used to go to the old arm. Now these new wires that come in from the side of the chip get get tied on. Uh, it's the most uh, hilarious hack. It's terrible. Um, I mean, really, I mean, it's massively innovative, massively innovative thing to yeah. do, right? Because the consensus yeah. is that you can't treat chips like this, right? That you that you go back and you reimplement the chip from scratch, uh, and the idea that you kind of do open heart surgery on on a on a floor plan and keep the vast majority of the floor plan the same, and therefore avoid the engineering effort involved in relaying it out, it's very cool, actually. So you know, so that's the lowest level stuff, right? These kind of open heart surgery on a chip design, and at the highest level, we worry about you know, do we like the icons? You know, is the yellow on a folder icon? the right yellow is the shadow behind a window shadowy enough mm. um and nobody gets to do that right but how Evan, how do you find so you know one of the things i found because you know I'm, I'm not technical like you by any means but the way i describe myself is an enthusiastic amateur terrible engineer but it's always been really hard for for me to balance the technical and business aspects of my role how did you find doing that you know bringing people on to help you scale the business at the same time as keeping on top of the technical side how did that play out for you I've got a lot of really bright friends, so um, I just hired all my friends, basically. Um, um, so so I, just, I just know a lot of really clever people. I don't have a lot of friends who don't work here, right? I, I read something where you say you've hired, all your, you've hired all your friends now. I've hired all my friends, right? And yeah, I mean, you, you do get to kind of to, to, to the limit of that as a... I keep finding new friends. I keep well, again, we keep remembering old friends. Actually, I keep. Oh, hang on a second. And we did. We had the. You know, we had. We had to find someone to do web dev for us. Um, and then I remembered that my office mate from when I was, a, when I was doing my PhD um, was CTO of FutureLearn and, and is now a web developer. And so I called him up and I said, yeah, some, web dev, some, "Some web dev doing?" And he's like, "Oh, I'm busy. I'm, I'm busy, but you should meet my friend Paul. He's pretty cool." Uh, and all of a sudden, we've got this amazing, amazing web guy. So. So, yeah, hiring your friends or your friends' friends is scalable as long as you've got good taste in friends. And <laughs> the interesting thing, that we, what we've been able to do, I mean, we had a couple of, a couple of really amazing early hires. So, um, Gordon Hollingworth and James Adams, Gordon on software, James on hardware. He's now our CEO, but he's still the, the kind of the core products he still designs. So, you know, Raspberry Pi 4 is a James product. And whenever we do Raspberry Pi 5, I'm sure that will be a James product as well. Um, He's just a he's a kind of savant engineer. He's just he's it's nuts. Like you look at his stuff. Like if you look at a you know if you look at a Raspberry Pi and they just look quality. You know they just there's just a, an engineering beauty to the big boards that isn't really there in most other electronic products. Most other electronic products they work, but they're not particularly beautiful. Um, we had some good luck. We were able to pick up a bunch of people. There was some reorganisation at Broadcom uh, in 2014. That, I mean, that was very useful. You know, if your if your main source of smart people that you know suddenly lets everyone go, um, yeah. that that's a, that's that's a bit of luck. 
I believe in the religion of the 10x engineer. You know, allow, allow me to tell allow me to tell you about our Lord and Savior, the 10x engineer. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I mean, it, it's one of these things where uh, you know people don't believe in it, but they're real. Absolutely, they are. You know, they're not 10x engineers. They're thousand x engineers. James Gordon. They're thousand x engineers. They can do yeah. things that a thousand average engineers could not do. And we have quite a lot of those, which is why it's a tiny organization. Uh, The interesting thing was, of course, the the stuff you can see is done by, at any given time, the stuff you can see, the stuff we've launched, was done by a small fraction of the organization, right? Because the organization is always growing and doing more stuff. And most of the stuff the organization is doing, you can't see because it's not finished yet. You know, Raspberry Pi 4, small team did Raspberry Pi 4. Best single board computer in the world. You can either see it as a small team or a big team because uh, if you go and read the, go, go and read the launch post, go and read the launch post for Raspberry Pi 4, um, uh, there's a tradition that the launch posts have credits lists at the bottom, and I wrote the credit, and it's a full credits list. So it's a credits list for all the organizations that were involved, so all of our, particularly all the silicon partners who were involved. It had 400 people on it before I added anyone who worked at Raspberry Pi. <laughs> But it only had about 415 people on by the time I finished putting all the people who, who, who work at Raspberry Pi. So it's a big team, but also but also a small team. It is incredible, right? You know, like you say, the the, the legend of the 10x or 100x, 1000x engineer. You've managed to attract multiple ones of them, which the, uh, you know, as well as being an amateur engineer, I'm a professional actuary, so that feels like a low probability event. Yeah. What What do you think drew them? You know, there are lots of reasons, like working for you, working with the friends. You've got a small startup family of your own. Mm. It sounds like there. What do you think drew them to you and keeps them working for Raspberry Pi? I mean, my view is we give people enough money, and we give people the opportunity to do really good work of the sort they want to do, broadly, of the sort they want to do. I mean, you've kind of got people have a natural vector they want to move along, and you can kind of bend the vector a little bit. Um, people understand that you've got to kind of do things that make money, otherwise no salary. Uh, uh, but you can't, if you try and bend the vector a long way, people will become demotivated. So you have a lot of people who are able to work kind of within the cone or within the sort of segment around their preferred vector, be reasonably well paid for it, uh, and do it in a no-bullshit environment. So we don't have meetings, we don't have PowerPoint, we don't have approval committees, we don't have committees. You know, you want to buy a piece of hardware, someone came to me the other day, it was like, I want to buy $300,000 something. And I was like, well, you know, is it going to make money for us? Like, yeah, we think it probably will. All right, well, go on then, crack on. When can we have it? September. Okay, yeah, let's do it. For me, yeah, you know, Rishi's giving incredible tax breaks for CapEx at the moment. Uh, it doesn't quite pay for itself, but it, it gets close, actually. So, you know, it's that kind of environment where, you know, people have a lot of, people are free to, uh, to do stuff. And because we've selected people who are both intelligent and nice i think i hope it's a good environment like that. there's not that there's not that guy we try to avoid there being that guy who, who makes you what not want to go to work and sometimes of course that guy is your boss um, <laughs> and that's that makes it really awkward because actually that guy is pretty good at getting promoted usually so you know we try not to have that guy i try not to be that guy and it's a work in progress I and mean, it's always a work in progress so. you make it sound and you also make it look incredibly easy uh so maybe let me ask you a different question where does it get hard for you what are the hard parts the hard levers uh you have days where you think it's all broken <laughs> yeah you definitely do yeah uh yeah we have we, you have you have days where you have, you have, you have the occasional days where it is all broken you know, we have <laughs> had very few of those but um but you have a lot of days where it's not clear i don't think i deal well with um uncertainty 
So I like it when everything is fine. I don't like it when everything might not be fine. So so if you have you know, a potential bug, I mean, we had a horrible time in the run-up to Pi 4 launch where we thought the chip was screwed. I mean, we thought the chip didn't reliably access memory. Um, so you run it, you know, be fine. You turn it on, play with it. It's all good. Compile the Linux kernel, loop for three days, and it'd fall over. And those are the worst bugs, right? And, and it might be horrible, but you could at least attack it. The one where, you know, one memory access returns the wrong value every three days, you know, that's how do you yeah. even begin to attack that problem, right? Um, unfortunately, the team are, are very good. So, I mean, actually, I was, I was on a, I was on a, a business trip um, in the middle of this, and I, I woke up one morning, and there was an email, and uh, Phil, uh, one of the guys here, had found a thing you could do that would make it fall over in a minute. And one of the other guys who was on the, I was actually on a trip with Philip Colligan, who runs the foundation, I said, hey, it's great, they can make it fall over in a minute. And he said, is that a good thing? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, that's a good thing, you know. Um, you know, it's a good thing because, you know, it makes it much more, much easier to attack and it turned out to be a software bug. Not sleeping for two weeks, that's, that's, that's hard, right? When I say I got up in the morning, that's not, I got up in the morning after a nice night of sleep, I got up in the, in the morning after a night of panicking. So, so that's those days are hard. Um, I, I've never actually found the trolls a problem. You, okay. You're afflicted by trolls. I mean, what you discover is, you know, a percent of people are psychopaths, something like that. Mm. Um, you sell a million chips, you sell a million yeah. computers, 10,000 psychopaths. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, and, um, uh, you know, so the world is full of trolls. I just can't take them seriously. And you, you get a lot of people who are in this kind of role, um, for who, where the trolls really eat at them, um, and, and and they feel obliged, you feel obliged to kind of come back at them, or or you just sit in the room feeling bad about yourself or feeling bad about the world. And I'm just like, look at these little people, you know, what's they going to do when their mom throws them out of the basement, you know? But so yeah, it's the internal, it's it's it's, it's the internal ones. You know, nobody is as fierce a critic of what we do than the team itself. Nobody feels the you know, the road bumps as much as the team. That's what makes it a great team, right? Because yeah. it's a team that wants to be, that's, al- that's already amazing and wants to be better than it is. So I suppose I want to pick on something you just mentioned there because I was trying to find the latest pie stats uh, number sold. 40 million now. So yes. I, I read somewhere that you thought the original goal was 1,000 to 10,000. 10,000 was the dream. It's the dream. You're at 40 million now. So I suppose a couple of things. So your life and perspective, it must have changed when you're like, you know, they call it product market fit or whatever the right phrase is, right? Yeah. And you're like, oh boy, this is going to be big. Yeah. You know, so I suppose, you know, can I ask like, what were the biggest things you had to do in yourself when you're like, okay, this isn't a hobby anymore. This is a, a real, this is going to be a big world changing business. Okay, to a great degree, we were very lucky because we had Liz on board. So she was a journalist um, and she stopped doing her freelance work in the summer of 2011, so before we launched, and she was running our press operation and running our social operation, and our first party uh, social as well, so blog and forums. And what that gave us was early warning that this was gonna be popular. And so, yeah, we did things like, we, we released a, a very early beta operating system that you could run on QMU, so you could run it in emulation on a PC. And we had 50,000 downloads in November of 2011. And there were all of these signs that it was going to get out of control. Uh, and we were attentive enough to those signs that we changed the business model. So this is why Raspberry Pi became a licensing business. Um, because it's a charity, it can't raise funds. It became a licensing company. And so by the time we had the first, the day one shock, which we had about enough money to build 10,000 Raspberry Pis. So, you know, we could, we sold 100,000 on the first day. So by the time we, by the time we got that day one shock, 
stock. We were already halfway through the transition away from being a product company to being a licensing, an IP licensing company. You talk about product market fit. It's a it's a category defining product, right? I mean, the interesting thing about Raspberry Pi is mm. that it's it's like an iPad. You know, it's a you couldn't have focus grouped the iPad into existence. You just yeah. needed to believe. And you couldn't focus group the Raspberry Pi into existence. You just had to believe. And once you believe, and, and, and you know, both those products tapped into a latent, a massive pool of latent demand for something that looked exactly like that. And you get explosive growth. Uh, and then the question is, how do you deal with that? And the, the answer to how you deal with that is obviously different if you are Apple, or if you're Raspberry Pi in 2012 when you have nothing, or if you're Raspberry Pi now, which is a kind of interesting middle ground between the two. So, for example, we launched RP2040 at the start of the year. So we launched Pico, the little microcontroller-based Raspberry Pi. And that's something which, again, has had amazing, kind of predictable product market fit, really, that one. I mean, the big surprise for us this year in terms of what's worked has been CM4, um, Compute Module 4 which is the latest of our kind of integrable Raspberry Pis, you know, uh, modularized Raspberry Pis. And it's just flown off the shelves. We can't make enough of them. We launched it in October last year, and it just blew up immediately. We're moving chips from other programs to try to feed CM4. But we're doing hundreds and hundreds of thousands of CM4s, and we're nine months into that program. And I have no idea how that's happened. And you can, you can, never, you can never tell. You can never tell what's going to succeed. It sounds like, you know, hit after hit. You know, this is well-denting stuff, right, that you're talking about, that the volumes are shipping. What skills have you had to learn or things that you've been like, wow, that's a surprise that that was part of my job? I'm not sure, I, I'm not sure I've learned anything, really. Maybe it's reinforced some beliefs in me. I mean, Raspberry Pi succeeds because it's, as a business, um, succeeds because of an enormous amount of luck, because you can never legislate for that. But to the extent that you can make the most out of the luck you've been given, yeah, it's designed around good, boring business principles. So it's designed to scale. So it's designed not to have working capital problems. You know, it's a licensing company. Why is it a licensing company? It's a licensing company because they're more scalable than product companies. So there are architectural decisions, you know, platform design decisions, which are there to, to ensure sustainability of the, of the business model. The, see, I told you it's boring. Um, <laughs> it's funny. It's funny. I, I, the course that I found least compelling on my MBA was the basically the IT course, the one I got the worst mark on. Um, and it, it talked a lot about platforms. God, they went on about platforms. And they went on about, like, you know, Intel have this amazing platform. You, know, you should try and run a platform business. And at the time, I was just, I mocked it so much because I'm like, this is like saying the problem that Kenya's got is it's not Saudi Arabia. You know, it's like, you know, stupid Kenya. They, they're not built on a, they're not built on a big pile of oil. You know, they should have done that. You know, but we're kind of like, right? I mean, kind of like, you know, Intel's kind of a golden ticket company, right? They were very fortunate. IBM gave them a golden ticket by using x86 in, in, in the IBM PC. Um, and, uh, you know, obviously they did a lot of cool work before that in order to make themselves be in a position to, to get the golden ticket. And having got the golden ticket, lots of companies get given a golden ticket and then manage to flush it down the toilet, right? So they, they then did a lot of cool work to exploit the golden ticket. But they're fundamentally a golden ticket company. And we'll talk about luck, right? Um, you know, you can't make, that's an amazing piece of luck. That's kind of Saudi Arabia luck, right? Mm. Uh, and so I just, it's completely ridiculous, right? Of course, now I run a platform company. Um, <laughs> um, just, you know, you know, on a very different scale from Intel, obviously, but you, it's exactly the same 
you know, thing. We got a golden ticket. You know, we we found ourselves with a category defining product. We were able to get it because we worked hard, and then we've worked hard to to get value out of that. And of course, the interesting thing about us is the value that we get out of that. We then return to a charity that does good work, which is obviously a, a very satisfying thing. Where it's been useful, it's a long answer, short question, long answer. Where it's been useful is it's given me opportunity to practice all the stuff. So you know, you go. I like this as a, as a flow, and I'm always suspicious that people do MBAs in their uh, in their mid twenties because I think the right flow is go out in the world, mm. you know, um, start a few companies, screw them up, then do an MBA, <laughs> then learn what you should have done, and then hopefully, fairly shortly thereafter, have a chance to have another go. Raspberry Pi had been going while I was doing the MBA, but really kicked off about a month after I finished the MBA. The sort of initial really big push um and it really was my has been my chance to to figure out what fraction of the stuff on that course was true we had a founder on the show a little while ago who's very similar to you she's like actually an mba was a really useful thing for me to after i'd set up a few businesses because it helped me realize you know, put a little bit of a framework around what i was kind of yeah. not doing quite right it doesn't teach you anything alan sugar doesn't have an mba right no, you know no, some no. people are some people are savants. I mean, some people could just do it. Hmm. Um, or they fail very quickly. Uh, they fail, fail repeatedly and quickly and therefore compress their learning into a short period of time. Um, anyone can, can get there by failing enough. As long as you have the ability to learn from your mistakes, anyone can get an MBA just by running businesses back to back and blowing them up. Um, but the MBA, although it's expensive and time consuming uh, for 18 months, I think it's quite an efficient way of, of you probably avoid blowing up two or three companies with, with the lessons you learn from the MBA if you're paying attention. For sure. Okay, I want to ask you a couple of dad questions now. You're a dad, you're a computer education pioneer. What's your take on computer educations in schools? The thing about computer education in schools, we, we did, we've never done it, right? We never did computer education in schools. You know, the 1980s, which is this our golden era that Raspberry Pi starts off trying to recreate, the 1980s, mm. the golden era of... People who look like me, you know, the computer industry looks a lot like me uh, in lots of dimensions. And, and, and that's because the hobbyist computer scene of the 1980s looked a lot like I looked like in the 1980s, right? So, so, so we kind of had this idea, hey, man, well, you know, we got lots of students back in, in the 90s. We got lots of students. They were kids in the 1980s. Let's see if we can make the 1980s again. We'll get some more students. Um, we weren't teaching computers in schools. We had some computers in schools, but they weren't there to teach computing. They were there to teach French. You know, <laughs> my school never used to BBC Micro. There was BBC Micros everywhere. They never used to teach programming. You turn them on, they boot into basic, and then you start up, you know, the oldie French tutorial program, you know, or whatever, uh, taxi simulator. And so, so we never taught computing. But by putting programmable hardware in the presence of children, we got a stream of middle-class boys um, who, by and large, um, who, who got into computing, like me. Uh, and then we did this ICT thing. I mean, we did ICT when I was a kid, um, something which would now be called ICT, you know, how to use Word. Mm. Um, and, and that's fine, and you need to teach me all these things. It wasn't a regressive step because there was no glorious previous world uh, that it represents a step back from. Um, but I think it was right to blow it up because it was a hell of a waste of time. It was very boring. Um, you know, you, you, it was regularly <laughs> ranked most boring subject to school. So they somehow managed to, to turn screwing around with computers into the most boring subject to school. Yeah. I mean, that takes some real talent, right? Yeah. And so the government was absolutely right to blow it up um, in whenever it was now, 2013, 24. Whenever Eric Schmidt gave his McTaggart lecture and said, you guys are a bunch of imbeciles, you, you invented you know, the country volunteering and you teach people Word in school, what, what are you doing? So you see, you know, they were right to do that. The curriculum 
as revised was ex is extremely strong. I know some of the people involved in drafting it. There are two schools, right? There's computing as maths. It's a bit like the MBA and, and running a business, actually. There's, there's computing as maths and there's computing as craft. They're both important, actually. Um, and the curriculum is quite mathsy. It's a great curriculum. What they didn't have for a long time was the teacher training to support it. And it's unreasonable to expect teachers mm. to teach without proper professional development. So the big thing that's changed, and obviously that Raspberry Pi has been involved in, the National Center for Computing Education is now training teachers, is now providing yeah. the teacher training. Hey, I, I never thought about that. You know, you think about when you're at school and you're learning maths, someone's teaching you maths, right? But when I was at school and people were showing you how to use a computer, they had no idea. You know, I've asked them to write a program in any way, shape or form. I knew more about how to program my calculator than my teacher did. Yes. Yes. Yeah. We are living in the golden era of extremely committed, talented teachers who are not shackled by a silly regressive curriculum and who have access to professional development and an examination system that's fit for purpose and where the kids who are excited about it can stick around after school and go to a code club and where nearly half of the people doing that are girls and where a school that is deprived as measured by the proportion of children on free school meals is more likely to have a code club than a school that's not deprived right you know we are living in the golden era today that's amazing. I think there's still some work to do to avoid losing the girls as you get between that kind of point of great enthusiasm at 9 to 13 and the still not super fantastic application rates to university courses and then to postgraduate and onwards. If you see that as being a solvable problem, which I think it is, if you see Code Club as being kind of a vision with its nearly 50-50 ratio of what the future might be like, then I think 20, 30 years' time, you go down an engineering office and you look around and it'll be people from a lot of different backgrounds. It'll be people, it'll be, it'll be men, it'll be women, people from a lot of different backgrounds. It'll be much more like society. And that'll be good for, I don't believe in this, you know, this is kind of like, you know, diverse teams produce better engineering apps. I don't think that's always sort of kind of teams who are diverse in a kind of a, in the, in a, mechanistic kind of way uh, produce better engineering output. But I think from the point of view of the individuals, providing the individuals with uh, uh, with access to these amazing jobs, right? Engineering, they pay you just buck around. It's wonderful. Um, providing the individuals with access to these jobs is, is, is super exciting. Uh, and, and the main thing I see when I, I look at an engineering office and it isn't balanced is I think about the people who are not in the room and they never had a chance yeah. to be in the room and what a waste that was for the individuals, much more than the company. Companies can take care of themselves. It's really great to hear uh, optimistic, positive take. So, you know, where does the Raspberry Pi then, and um, you know, the Raspberry Pi Foundation and business, where do you think the role it plays in the in the future of computing education? Because it feels like you can definitely tick one of the boxes of, of the goals <laughs> that you wanted to achieve. Well, so I said there's still work to do. Um, solving the problem in the UK will be painting the force bridge. Um, we'll have to do what we're doing forever in order to avoid it sliding, okay. back, sliding backwards. Um, the real opportunities there are overseas. Um, so the real opportunities are elsewhere in the developed world. Um, we have a desire to make sure that we are making a contribution in the markets where we sell product. Obviously, the US is a big market for us, uh, and there are foundation staff in North America. Uh, low middle income countries uh, is going to be big for us. So, um, Africa, we just hired our first employee in Nigeria. We have had some people working in India. Um, for quite a while on the foundation side, uh, and that's that's a fascinating environment because there's uh, there you can do a lot with partnership. There, there's a lot of there are a lot of very capable existing N uh, NGOs that you can partner with. 
to get scale there where you know you can you can bring your expertise your 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 domain expertise to an existing ngo and leverage their scale um so that's that's a, that, that's exciting so i kind of think you know the global opportunities both commercially and charitably are are enormous and we're not going to run out of stuff to do in my lifetime. Uh, it sounds like you've got plenty to keep you busy. Awesome. Evan, I'd like to ask you the question I ask everyone on the show, which is what's the lesson that you've learned from your journey in entrepreneurship that you want to pass on to your kids? I suppose it's perseverance, isn't it? I've been doing Raspberry Pi for a long time. been doing Raspberry Pi for 13 years. That's an incredibly long time. I've never done anything for more than four years before. I was already over time for Broadcom when I finished the MBA. I, I kind of had really set myself a time limit of four years for, for Broadcom. And, and that is kind of a thing these days, isn't it? That people change mm. jobs very frequently. And I don't more, understand yeah. how. Like it's something like the average people's average time in the company in Silicon Valley is like two years. Like, but it takes you like six months to find out where the coffee <laughs> machine is. And then if you think your last six months is probably doing interviews for your next job, you've got a year. You know, when you're caffeinated and not distracted by doing interviews. You know, I, 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 how do you do anything in a year? I, I, I mean, I, I actually did a lot in my first year of Broadcom. I remember just like I, I, just my abiding memory of 2006, my first year of Broadcom, was I just worked and slept. And it wasn't like I was working 20 hours. I was working eight hours. I just work eight hours and come home and just go, and I'm going to sleep now. What's going to be interesting for me with the kids is music because I'm not musical and my wife is. Liz is very, very musical. I'm, she is a former professional musician. Um, and of course, learning music is not like learning to program a computer because learning to program a computer is fun from day one if you're into it. It's fun from day one. I think pretty much even if you're into it, learning a musical instrument like the piano is just wretched for years. Like, it's just awful. I mean, it's awful for you. It's awful for those around you. Um, <laughs> if you're a piano in a room at one end of the house, you know. Um, but, you know, it, it's, it's awful. And, you know, my natural model of child rearing, and I think actually Liz's model of natural model of child rearing for everything other than music is, is that you, you don't, you know, force your child to do a thing it doesn't want to do. But for music, you kind of have to, right? in order to unlock there is an energy barrier between you and the first mm. moment where it's genuinely enjoyable and both of our children are particularly kid actually love they love music so that's going to be that's going to be a thing and i'm going to learn something yeah from that yeah for sure well that has been an absolutely epic episode before we wrap up though i'd like ever to ask for your startup shout out where we shine oh. a light on organization uh, in the startup ecosystem or person or founder or anyone startup related uh, that we admire startup shout outs who's yours so i am going to pick agile analog in cambridge so agile analog um, make analog as you might imagine. Uh, they, make, they make analog IP or systems for making analog IP for chips. So, um, you know, anything from an analog to digital converter to a power supply, they are better at making these things or more efficient at making these things than almost anyone else. Um, they are run by my former boss, uh, Tim Ramsdale, my former bro boss at Broadcom before 2014. Um, and they're doing really cool stuff. And they're doing silicon. They're doing silicon and silicon fan. One of the challenges with Cambria, so they talk about silicon fan, not many chips get made or not, many, not, not much silicon gets done in silicon fan anymore. Um, and so it's wonderful to see a really grungy, deep tech silicon company starting up and succeeding in Cambria. They just closed a 19, they've had money from um, First Minute Capital. 
uh, which is um, Brett Holman's uh, fund. Uh, they've just raised a $19 million round a few weeks ago. Um, so they're having a good time. Uh, we love what they do. and We love the people. Good on them. Nice to hear about, you know, it all starts with the silicon, doesn't it? Nice to hear about some of that happening in the UK. So Yes, yes. Super great. Well, Eben, again, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you very much for having me. Many thanks to today's guest. You'll find links to them and their work in the show notes. It would really help us if you shared the show with a friend or colleague. So if you know someone who might find this podcast valuable, please pass it on to them. If you'd like to connect with me, reach out on Twitter at StartupDadsPod. 